Hello, I'm Mike Philpott and this is episode 6 of The Next Page, a seven-part podcast from the Commission for Victims and Survivors for Northern Ireland. In previous episodes, we've explored the effects of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement 25 years on, as well as the implications of the Legacy Bill, which seeks in effect to draw a line under the past. You can download at Apple, Google, Spotify or wherever else you normally find your podcasts. You can also listen at the Commission's website, www.cvsni.org. This time we're looking at acknowledgement and memorialisation. But what exactly does that mean? Should it involve apologies for wrongdoing? Should there be reparations for those affected by violence? Can it be done collectively or should victims be remembered individually? What have we as a society done already? I suspect the answer will be not enough. So what remains to be done? Just a reminder right from the outset that some of the opinions you'll be hearing are the personal thoughts of those who are taking part. They're not necessarily representative of other people or organisations, but it's important to hear them. After all, history is made up of human experience. I'm joined by Victims Commissioner Ian Jeffers and Dr Cheryl Lawther and Dr Luke Moffat, two of our leading experts on reparations and transitional justice. Ian, let me start with you. The words acknowledgement and memorialisation, what do they mean to you? I think the, the big one in there that has you know, really sat in my desk from nearly the first day uh, of my appointment has been acknowledgement. Victims have said to me they want acknowledgement. They want uh, that information out there about what happened to their loved one and for society in many ways to recognise that and to recognise their pain and their suffering uh, they've gone through. Likewise, we've also got some victims that don't want reminded of any of that. They may have had enough information or they may have chosen to look forward in a different way. So it's a complex area, the acknowledgement, but it is there's a common thread in many of the victims I've spoken to uh, of this acknowledgement side. When it comes to memorialization, I think we're in a very complex area. What is memorialization? You know, a memorialization to one person could be a tree planted in their name, or it could be a huge epitaph of some sort. Uh, you, you know, and the reality is, it's not going to fit at all sizes. You know, it's not going to work for every family, for every victim, and so forth. And I think individuals have to be given that choice when it comes to memorialization. One thing I would want to say on that, though, is whatever it is, we can't glorify it. Uh, and that's, I think, key to what we want to do looking forward. You know, we are 25 years this year after the Good Friday Agreement, and there's you know many, many thousands of victims haven't got any acknowledgement. There isn't suitable memorialization. And you know, now is the time to address those things if we're really to look to the future. Luke, what does the word acknowledgement mean to you? I suppose coming from a reparations perspective, uh, acknowledgement is for victims to have their harm publicly recognised by the state or by a responsible actor who caused that. And that requires the person who caused the harm to them to recognise what they did was wrong. And it's about, in a way, vindicating victims' experience that they didn't deserve to go through that and experience the consequences that happened to them, their family and community. So I think a big part of acknowledgement is that sort of make it, making for the personal individual and their family that recognition that they're worth something in society, but also for society to acknowledge the violence that happened in the past wasn't justified and it should never have caused the harm that it did in the way that it did. Isn't this a very difficult area because many of the people who took part in the conflict 
don't want to admit that they were wrong. I think it's a, a common problem for dozens of countries around the world for those who committed violence in the past and who justified it and who took up arms for whatever ideology, personal interest or otherwise and to sort of confront that because it's part of their psychology, it's part of you know what gets them up and puts the past behind them every day. But we need to think about if we're moving towards a new society you know, that's away from violence, we need to face the past. Otherwise, and my, my real concern is about this country and other places, is that we continue to bury the past. The next generation is going to dig it up and it's going to be a blight for generations to come. And it's not some sort of negative viewpoint of where Northern Ireland's going. It's our history and we shouldn't be condemned by our history. We've had hundreds of years of the sectarian violence that hasn't gone away. And in every single epoch where that's happened, we've never dealt with it. We've never confronted the way in which state and non-state actors have used violence was wrong. Um, even in the hundred years Northern Ireland has existed, we've never properly confronted people who were victims and got those responsible to be accounted for. Now, we're in a place now where we're 50 years on from most of the, the height of the troubles. People weren't properly compensated. You know, people who were bereaved, particularly in the 70s, got you know, a pittance, maybe 50 pounds for a family member. People who had children killed got nothing, the funeral cost really. You know, so I think we need to sort of think about what we're trying to do with a transitional justice approach to Northern Ireland about dealing with the legacy stuff. It's become very legalistic in the sense that it's focused around Article 2 compliance, which rolls off people's tongues because it's what we have to do under the European Convention of Human Rights, which means we have to have an effective investigation in very like simplistic terms. But what that means is then we don't look at people who are injured. We don't look at um, a whole range of violence that occur, people being displaced, and it also means that we get focused on trying to pursue prosecutions and truth recovery, which isn't always possible. And those sort of things lead to individual victims not getting acknowledged for what happens to them. And it also moves away from society confronting that the problem of violence and the troubles in Northern Ireland was our society, the way in which we created it, the way in which other actors put in institutions which you know benefited or uh, had a detriment on one side or the other. We need to try better. And, and I think peace is a constant struggle in this place. But dealing with the past is something which is going to fester for the next generation. I'm really concerned that if we don't deal with that, then we're condemning our children and grandchildren to live through the violence that some of us did. Cheryl, what's your take on all of this? In terms of acknowledgement, I think acknowledgement means a recognition of wrong. And one of the things that's really struck me right from the start of my career when I started looking into these kind of issues is one of the sort of the key findings or the key messages that came out of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And while, of course, Northern Ireland and South Africa are, are very different contexts, one of the things that victims and survivors in South Africa said that with the way the findings and the hearings of the TRC in South Africa were disseminated, it meant that people could no longer say, I didn't know. And I think to me, that's what acknowledgement is about. It's about that recognition that something happened and often that harm was covered up or denied or silenced or just simply wasn't recognised. And to me, acknowledgement happens on many different levels and it can make many different forms for victims and survivors. So I do a lot of work with victims and survivors in Northern Ireland. And for some victims and survivors, acknowledgement is something that they deem should happen at the macro level. So for example, the acknowledgement that comes out of a inquest in respect to legal findings or a public inquiry. 
For other people, it might be acknowledgement from the state, the British state, for example, in the form of an apology, or equally from an armed organisation such as the IRA, an apology to families who were harmed by different actions of the IRA. Or it meant might actually be acknowledgement of internal dynamics within communities. So, for example, within Republican communities, families who maybe had a loved one killed as an alleged informer, an acknowledgement that that individual, for example, was killed wrongly and their family name tainted wrongly. Or it might actually be something that occurs, for example, within victims' organisations themselves. So... As lots of our listeners will know, some of our victims' organisations in Northern Ireland do fantastic memorial quilts. And that gives individuals an opportunity to create a small square in memoriam of their loved one. And they can put that up on the square for other people to see. But also, as one lady said to me, when I began, when she began going to these quilting groups and classes, she realised that she wasn't alone, that she was actually part of a broader community and a broader network of people who had suffered the same harm. So she was able to get acknowledgement of her loved one in the community, but also she created like a network of solidarity and acknowledgement amongst her peer group effectively. So acknowledgement can happen at lots of different levels, but it can also take many different forms. So it might be about the recovery of truth. It might be a statement of apology. It might be a form of reparation or compensation. So, for example, I sit as a lay member of the Victims Payments Board. And while I can't talk about specifics of individual cases, it's been really instructive and also Uh, extremely challenging to sit as a lay member when you see people who have sat with their physical or psychological injuries for so long and that ability to receive some form of acknowledgement is both symbolic in the sense it's a recognition that this happened to you and this was a harm and it has affected you for the, the rest of your life but also there's a practical element to that as well in the sense of this is a recognition that sometimes a little bit of money actually it's not going to change someone's life in terms of sending you off on worldwide cruises or whatever but it can give you money to make you know, everyday life a little bit easier. So I think acknowledgement happens at different levels and it can mean very many different things. I don't think there'd be one agreed definition across our victims and survivors community. In terms of um, acknowledgement and admission of wrongdoing, we're up against a major problem because it's 25 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Both perpetrators and victims and survivors are getting older. People are dying off. Won't some of that admission of wrongdoing then be lost forever. That is uh, an inherent danger with the passage of time. Um, I think, you know, if you're, as you said, victims and survivors are ageing, those who have knowledge are also ageing. But what we're also seeing, to some extent, I think, for example, the findings of the Savile Inquiry or the Ballymurphy Inquest sort of disproved this to some extent. But forensic evidence is degrading over time. Maybe, for example, notebooks were not stored or they've been demolished over time. But also, I think in terms of the passage of time, one of the big issues that we're seeing in Northern Ireland is the impact of transgenerational trauma and to an extent not even intergenerational trauma. So for victims and survivors who maybe experienced violence 30 or 40 years ago, that experience of harm is now filtering down to their children and indeed their grandchildren. So what you are seeing is in fact... Uh, people who have no f- personal, first-hand, direct experience of that original violation are now taking up the cause on behalf of their families. And that 
of course, is something you would expect those individuals to do, but that is also a significant amount of work for those families and those children and those grandchildren. And I think if you take that even broader, then if you look, at, for example, at the rates of uh, mental illness in Northern Ireland, post-traumatic stress disorder, we have the highest rate in Western Europe of male suicide. All of that is a legacy of the unaddressed consequences of the conflict. So you have that in the mix on one level, but then the fundamental problem for me and the problem that the Belfast Agreement actually didn't address because it probably wouldn't have been signed had they tried to get to the core of the question is the question actually of what was the conflict about in the first place and I think until you actually start to unpick that question of the meta conflict then you will always have a division over the allocation of blame and the inscription of innocence and guilt because we've never actually resolved that core fundamental question. Ian, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I think the point Cheryl makes is key here. It's about time. Uh, we have got, you know, uh, an aging population that we're directly impacted, but we've also got the intergenerational impact of it all. And I think, you know, it's a challenge to us all, particularly those in a position to do something about it. Cheryl mentioned the Victims Payments Scheme, for example. You know, that took well over 10 years of lobbying and only really come into play about a year and a half ago. So that's, you know, 23 years after we've signed the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. That's no way to treat our victims. And I think until we put victims front and centre of every conversation we're having, we don't start to address the problems. And as Luke rightly says, it's, a, it's about looking at the, the big picture here and really challenging ourselves. Uh, and we've got to do that. You know, we've got, to some extent, this comfort of peace around us. And I use that in inverted commas. But we've got that safe place now to have these difficult conversations but we can't wait another 25 years we've got to put some pace against this i mean we're sitting now we don't have officially a strategy for victims and survivors the last one is out of date and we're waiting in many ways for you know a, a first and deputy first minister to be in place and then the executive office will produce a new strategy that we can all comment on now, we shouldn't necessarily wait for a bit of paper to get us to do things. But in the absence of that leadership, we've got to challenge ourselves uh, and those really concerned about looking for the way forward of how we do this. And it, it, we have to inject some pace into it. Look, I, I don't want to go too deeply into the Legacy Bill because we've done two programmes on that subject, but how damaging do you think that will be to the idea of acknowledgement? Well, I think it's a bill that's not for victims. That's not for this place. They've consulted and they've got... They've managed to build consensus in Northern Ireland that everybody here is, is opposed to. So it brings to mind the way in which the British deal with other populations around the world, around colonialism. And we're just a, a little part, a colony really to them, where it doesn't matter what our democratic views are, that they're just going to do whatever they want and protect their soldiers like they've done, you know, in, in, in Aden, in Cyprus and elsewhere in Kenya. And they were never held to account for the violence that they did. And that's that's really problematic because, you know, it's 20 years on since the Iraq war and th those images that people are familiar with, shock and awe, um, of bombs being dropped, it dehumanised actually the Iraqis who were living on the ground and the, the hundreds of thousands of that, that died. And I think the way I really look at the past, the way this legacy bill tries to see the past in Northern Ireland sanitises the way in which violence was used in the sense that it protects those who were responsible for for killing and maiming other peoples. They destroyed thousands of people's lives in this place. And for what? And it's not just the state, it's, you know, it's paramilitary groups, paramilitary groups which continue to exist and justify their existence on 
you know, of creating the United Ireland or maintaining the union through violence. And it's destructive politics. And we've got governments who don't want to take um, leadership in resolving these things permanently. Like really a victim strategy should be, how do we work a way out of not anybody in this country having to call themselves a victim in order to get things? Because what we've created is a society of beggars that we should be getting basic human rights. Like other countries around the world do this. Colombia's got over 9 million victims, you know, a fifth of the population. Ukraine's looking at something even more. And yet we, as a, you know, quite a well-off country, um, don't have the political will or the resources to back that up, to actually change things in society permanently. And I don't mean just for the victims of the past, but to make sure there's no victims of the future. And I think when we talk about the state and the you know, paramilitary groups, they need to acknowledge the past. You know, the Nazis did, the Germans, because they, many of them were still in government or brought back into government after the Second World War. Um, so why can't we do this here? You know, it's a question of political will. And I think for those who've committed violence, reparations and acknowledgement provide a pathway for them to rehabilitate their image. It allows them to take ownership of the things they've done in the past and say, these things were wrong. You know, we shouldn't have done this. We're committed to the peace now and we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. And so like these things aren't new. They've been used for hundreds, thousands of years. Ireland and Scotland have one of the oldest laws on war, the laws of innocence from like, what, 647 AD, and where people got together and tried to limit the way in which violence was used in this place. So why can't you know people here just get together and do things themselves? And because we've got no government installments, things have been allowed to seep into Tory politics and the government to dictate how the past should be made. But we should have dealt with this issue decades ago. You know, it's it's you know like Seamus Mallon talked about the Good Friday Agreement being the Sunningdale Agreement for slow learners. It took twenty five years to get from Sunningdale to Good Friday. You know, and we're at the same position where you know we've had Eames Bradley, we've had the Stormont House Agreements. We've had a Hasso Sullivan. We've had a whole different reiterations of how to deal with the past. We need to know what happened. We need to know what the conflict was really about. We need to sort of unpick the lies and the negative justifications for violence. And we also then need to acknowledge individual victims. We need to find somewhere where we can write down everybody who was killed and say these were all the people who were killed. It doesn't make everybody the same. It doesn't make everybody an innocent victim. But this is what we lost as a society. We are poor for everybody who died and were maimed during the Troubles. And we need to learn from that and teach that to our children and grandchildren so that never happens again. Because otherwise, we're just pandering as we are to doing something in a piecemeal and very patchwork way that doesn't solve anything. And we're just fooling ourselves that we're actually changing anything. Does the book Lost Lives play a role in this? Because it names all the people who were killed. I think Lost Lives is such an important book and it should be in every single school in this country. Every single person isn't just a statistic. We don't talk about you know, three and a half thousand people, people who were killed. There's individuals who got names in it. People can look up family members who were killed and there's a small story or there's a background to what happened and what their background was and how they died. And I think that's such an important thing. You can't buy it now these days. It's like a few hundred or a few thousand pounds on Amazon. But it's an important part in sort of documenting at least. I think acknowledgement and reparation needs to move beyond that, that it needs to be more widely known, that we've got a memorial to the Korean War and the Titanic outside Belfast City Hall, but we've got nothing to the troubles. Like, I don't know anybody that they died in the Titanic, and it was over 100 years ago, 110 years ago. And the Korean War, like, we were such a tiny part in that in the 50s, like, you know, so I think we need to wise up and to have some political leadership in this place and to deal things and stop expecting political parties or the British or Irish governments to do things for us. We need to take ownership of this ourselves as civil society, as people in this country to do better and to push 
our political parties and governments to do that. Because in any other country around the world, reparations and acknowledgement doesn't come from the good graces or the charity of the state. It's hard fought for by people in society, on the streets, on social media, in the courts. And the reason why the Victims Payment Scheme succeeded is because the injured group got together and put pressure on everybody. They had bilateral meetings, they had you know court cases, they had things in the newspapers constantly. You know, And it was that sort of push that actually got things done. Um, so I think we need to revisit how we strategize and moving forward for victims and don't expect everything to come from the top down in terms of like the TEO, the executive office, saying, well, this is what we should do. We need to be doing better than that. We need to be working ourselves out of jobs when it comes to victims in Northern Ireland. Cheryl, just on that subject of memorialization, how do we organize that? Because, I mean, if you take somewhere like Oma, for example, there are three separate memorials to what happened. Should it be more centralised or should it be up to each person individually? I think that's a million dollar question. There's been suggestions around how to memorialise the conflict have been around since I think Sir Kenneth Bloomfield's report in 1998. And then that was picked up again to a certain extent by Healing Through Remembering and then followed on by the consultative group in the past in 2009. But I think it's the fact that, you know, absolutely nothing has come of those suggestions around memorialisation are indicative of the fact just how difficult it would be to actually memorialise the conflict here in a way that actually speaks to so many different diverse constituencies uh, and diverse voices and experiences of victimhood and I think it would be very difficult to have one overarching memorial to the conflict in Northern Ireland. We are still divided over the legal definition of a victim or survivor of the conflict. Certain individuals will not, for example, want their name on a memorial with other individuals. Certain individuals and families, as is their right, just simply don't want that in the public domain. They want to remember their loved one privately and within the family circle. But we've also uh, had seen... We've also seen difficulties around the different forms of memorialisation that there are here. So as you said, for example, OMA is one single but mass atrocity and you've got three different forms of memorialisation in respect to the OMA bombing. So that's one atrocity. And if you were to extrapolate that up to 3,700 deaths, what are we talking about? Tens of thousands of people displaced, hundreds of thousands injured as a result of the conflict. It would be very difficult and probably inappropriate to have one overarching mechanism of memorialisation. But what that doesn't mean is that you walk away from the fact that we need to commemorate, memorialise, acknowledge those who were lost. I think what is more important is creating the structures that allow people to buy into different processes of acknowledgement or memorialisation in a way that they see fit. And it's not, we can't use the fact that memorialisation is difficult to close the door and say we shouldn't do anything. We need to be more creative, we need to be bolder, and we need the political will to actually say there is scope here to try to meet people's needs as much as we possibly can. Um, I mean, there are many forgotten victims of the conflict, but how do we memorialise people from outside of this tiny part of the world? I'm thinking of the people who were killed in the Dublin and Monaghan bombings. I'm thinking of people who were killed across the water Mm -hmm. in IRA attacks. 
There are some forms of memorialization that have actually been quite successful um, and quite cohesive forms of memorialization to victims and survivors who have been killed outside of Northern Ireland. So uh, if you get off the train in Connolly Street Station in Dublin, the memorial to those who were killed in the Dublin and Monaghan bombings is actually right beside the train station. And that is in quite a central location and that's been quite... uh, an agreeable process of commemoration and there's often commemorative events every year around that, literally the physical location of that memorial. Likewise, in England, after the Warrington bombing, as lots of our listeners know, the families of the Tim Parry and Jonathan Ball established the Warrington Peace Centre. And that is a tremendous form of memorial and acknowledgement of not only what happened to their children, but to that commitment to never again. So those discrete forms of memorialisation have actually worked quite well outside of Northern Ireland. But then equally, when you talk to victims and survivors who aren't resident here in Northern Ireland, they don't really feel that their victimhood is recognised as much. They feel somewhat cut adrift. So I think while those forms of memorialisation have worked, we also need to recognise as a society that there are significant numbers of people who were harmed outside the geographical border here. And just because they're a short plane flight away or a short car drive away doesn't mean that we forget about them or we don't acknowledge their experiences. There were also people who were harmed in a different way. And I'm thinking of the fact that many, many of the victims were men who left behind wives to bring up families alone. How do we acknowledge their pain? I think acknowledging and uh, even recognising the experience of, of women who suffered as a result of the conflict, either because they lost husbands or fathers or partners, for example, or perhaps because they were victims as well, has been something that we have been uh, not particularly strong on as a society. At different points in time, there has been some energy around recognising the experiences of women. So around the time of the Stormont House Agreement in 2014, there was a parallel process led by a number of victims' organisations, NGOs and academics about establishing gender principles around dealing with the past. And that was orientated towards recognising, for example, say a woman had lost her husband and she had three children. Suddenly, not only was she solely responsible for bringing up those children, but she also had to deal with bringing in, you know, taking on a job, bringing in money, providing for her family. But she also, on top of that, had to deal with the grief of her own grief and the grief of her children. Um, And then if you distill even further down into that, there is the range of gender-based and sexual harms that have occurred over the course of the conflict in Northern Ireland that have received really very little recognition. And it's interesting in the Legacy and, and Reconciliation Bill that immunity from prosecution will not be granted to those who perpetrated sexual violence or sexual harms. But as to whether that actually provides any means of redress or not for victims and survivors is another matter, because without immunity from prosecution, it's going to be very difficult, of course, for people to actually encourage people to actually come forward in respect to those harms. So there's a huge gap in respect to how we deal with women and the specific forms of harm that they experienced. In terms of reparations, Luke, do they always have to be financial? No, I think the way in which I understand reparations now is very much moved on from the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War. Now when we think about reparations, it's been very coloured by the experience in Latin America and places like Peru, Guatemala, Colombia, whereby you have the human rights courts, but also the states delivering compensation, which is important to victims. Victims still need to pay for things. 
but also a whole range of support measures to better deal with the range of harms that are caused by gross human rights violations like disappearances, torture, sexual violence, um, indiscriminate bombings. And I think there, what the starting point is that compensation helps, but giving people money for things that they've suffered undermines their dignity in the sense that it doesn't fully encapsulate their human suffering. So you can't just put a monetary or market value on a person's life. And so there needs to be other things. So the Inter-America Court and the state practice in, in Latin America has also included things like rehabilitation, which is such an important part, both in terms of the physical and mental well-being of a person so that they can function healthily, but also their social and legal reintegration. So they've got legal status as citizens, that they go back to work or go back to education, have opportunities moving forward. Beside this, there's also things like restitution, the return of property. This is something we haven't really dealt with well in Northern Ireland because we've had a population that was heavily displaced. And as a result of that, we have informally segregated ourselves permanently now in the peace process. Also, another measure of reparations is um, what we call satisfaction, which are like a whole broad range of measures of a way of moving and recognising the individual harm and making society aware of that. So this include things like apologies, like acknowledgement, measures of dignification and memorialization, as well as investigations. And the final thing is the issue of guarantees of non-repetition. And these are measures where the state itself takes institutional reform, but it also be carried out by armed groups as they move towards peace. Um, in Northern Ireland, we have done somewhat quite well in terms of guarantees of non-repetition, we reform our criminal justice system, our constitutional system, as well as our police force, etc. And re- really built in equality and human rights in terms of how we're governed and operate. And so we've done that to some extent well, but we haven't done all the other aspects of it. And I think that's really problematic because while structurally we've changed things in Northern Ireland for individual victims, they haven't been properly acknowledged. They haven't been adequately compensated. So the bereaved, there's been you know nothing really done beyond those few who might be, like the very few who might be eligible on the injured scheme because they were there at the incident when the person was killed. And then with, you know, rehabilitation, we've got ongoing services. But, you know, I know for injured victims, they've had to wait for years to get specialist surgeries that they need. With the way much health services now, it's, it's incredibly, you know, delayed service provision. So I think when we think about reparations, they're supposed to give victims a new way forward. They can't, you know, be a magic wand that solves everything but they allow victims a path forward that has a dignified existence and the whole thing about the victims payment scheme for injured victims it wasn't about giving people just money and telling them to go away it was about giving them financial security to people who were marginalized and left very vulnerable because most of them were blown up in the 70s they were discriminated in the workplace they had very little educational opportunities they had very little money terms of compensation or insurance was paid out towards them and so they weren't expected to live that long and so 50 years later when they're only expected to live for 15 they were living in poverty and so the whole point of the victims payment scheme was to recognize them as victims but also give them a dignified existence you know in a society where they suffered the most and carried the burden of the past the most they should be the ones helped and i think with bereaved we haven't done that with sexual violence we haven't touched that not just sexual violence against women um, and girls, but also within prisons, within paramilitary groups, the way they conducted uh, sexual violence. These things haven't been tackled. And this is incredibly problematic today in Northern Ireland, where we've got incredibly high levels of male sexual violence compared to the rest of the UK, sexual violence against children, and continuing and you know rampant sexual violence and you know, the use of drugs 
against women in our society today, which isn't talked about, it isn't dealt with, and there's very few prosecutions. And I think these are all legacies of the past because the way in which we see people, the way in which we see sexual violence isn't properly dealt with. And so we continue to marginalise people. It's the same with people who suffer paramilitary attacks. You know, the the court system for many years say, well, if you weren't involved in housebreaking or, you know, joyriding, you wouldn't have been, you know, shot, you know, so therefore they reduced their compensation. And you had quite senior judges who are still celebrated today making those decisions. So we need to fundamentally confront and be critical of our past. And that includes a lot of professions, you know, like law, medicine, the civil service, and do better as a society, as I keep on saying. And so reparations, in one way, is supposed to be towards the individual, but it also is supposed to be collective to society and help move society on. And the guarantees of non-repetition is about creating a culture where we don't resort to violence or the threat of violence every time we don't get everything we want politically. And we see this with the Brexit debate. We see, you know, we've got a constitutional and legal process where people can work in. And if people aren't happy with that, then they can write to their local politician. They don't need to, to resort to violence because we know the consequences of violence. We know that people are still living with them. We know that their children and grandchildren are still living with those consequences. So we need to find a way of moving forward in terms of those issues. Reparations are just one part of the puzzle. But I think acknowledging the past, confronting it and being critical of it is going to be key for us as society moving forward. Ian, final two-part question for you. First of all, do you ever feel as if you have an impossible job? And secondly, what do you see as the way forward in terms of acknowledgement? I, I do not think you can say this is an impossible job. I think, uh, as Luke and Cheryl have indicated, there are ways forward. What might feel impossible at times is getting people to move forward, getting the leadership to move forward. But I think the key in all of this is put the victim in the middle of it give the victim's voice, make sure that voice is heard and really work with all our victims and put them front and centre of the decision-making process. And I think if, if victims are given that opportunity to have those discussions, you'll see more forward-looking people. You see people that are and have forgiven in some ways or certainly consider that the future is brighter in a peaceful society. And I think they can honestly teach us all an awful lot more, but we've got to listen to them. Okay, Ian, Cheryl, Luke, thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to the next page. Next time in our final episode, we'll be looking at what the future holds for the current generation of young people. If you'd like to share your thoughts on what you've heard, you can email the Commission's office, commission at cvsni.org, and use the word podcast in the subject line. You can find out more about the Commission's work on the website www.cvsni.org or you can follow them on Twitter at nivictims.com. The next page is produced by Start Together Studios for the Commission for Victims and Survivors. I'm Mike Philpott. The executive producer is Alana Fisher. 